At some point uh, throughout history, the tradition, well, you experienced it a bit earlier when Josh uh, uh, gave you that little phrase, he is risen, and some people responded with, most of you did. That's very, very good. So let's all try that together. I, I say he is risen and you, you one-up me is how that works. With uh, always, that's right. With he is risen indeed. So let's try that. He is risen. The early church had this tradition of saying that because they needed to be reminded of the things that matter. Because we have a habit of forgetting about what matters. And life pushes in on us and we begin to think about our problems or our circumstances or our deal or our worries or uh, the people around us or relationships that have caused some tension and we need to be reminded that there are some things that matter more than other things. And my guess is you have a, a busy day ahead. You probably have maybe some festivities, some meals, some eggs to find or something like that. And if, if that's the case, we'll just take a few minutes today before you leave and, and remind you of some things that, that matter, that matter the most. So before we rush to the resurrection, um, we're going to just stay just a moment uh, at the very end of John before the resurrection, which is in John 19. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation would be the day before the Passover. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I don't know why, but this year it occurred to me maybe for the first time that Jesus didn't have a funeral. I don't know if that's occurred to you or not. I mean, it's what happens when you die as a criminal. We can kind of expect that. There, there was no wake. Uh, there was no um, celebration of life as we've come to call them today. Uh, there was no funeral at all. Jesus died a, a criminal's death. I think it was on my mind this year because we had a funeral in our church yesterday. Uh, it's the first time I've ever been a part of a funeral that happened between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That's never happened in my years of ministry uh, for my experience, but we, we had a funeral here. The gentleman, part of our church, I'll show you his picture in case he's familiar to you. Um, Jack Kreger passed away uh, a week before Good Friday, in fact, and Jack and Tina and Many of their dearest friends have been a part of our church for a few years, and um, a little bit less so during COVID, like most of us, um, but some health issues also kept them home, but, but he passed away. We had his funeral, and, I, and I, honestly, I think it was um, maybe spiritually, maybe a little bit emotionally, uh, a very powerful experience to be present for uh, this, this type of experience in between Friday and Sunday. I mean, the, the thoughts of life and death really came to coalesce around Easter and even his life as we remembered uh, with his family. And now, I, I want to tell you that this has never happened to me before. I, I was reading uh, Jack's obituary in the office a few days um, before the funeral, and, and immediately I almost doubled over in laughter, just a belly laugh. And that's never happened when I've read an obituary before. <laughs> Um, in fact, I don't know, has anybody pre-written your obituary? Anybody? Any mentally ill folks in the room? Then? I highly recommend it. Now, I'm going to do mine now, having experienced this, and my goal in my obituary is to make you, whoever reads it, to double over in laughter. That's my only goal, and, and that happened with Jack, and I read it out loud to a few people. Uh, the same thing happened to him. Of course, I'm reading about his life and his family and all the things that that meant the world to him. And, and then this is the, the last, uh, last little paragraph of his obituary. 
Jack requests that six Colorado's Rocky baseball players to serve as pallbearers so that they may let him down one last time. <laughs> Never fails. Never fails. I read it out loud to a few people and they just, they, that's exactly what they did. I mean, that's just good comedy, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. You don't even know Jack. So you don't even know Jack. And that's just dead hilarious. Um, pun intended. Jack would love it. Jack was a punny fellow. And, and, uh, and you know, this, this moment between uh, Good Friday and Easter, it, it exemplifies the vast majority of our life because we find ourselves needing to be reminded about the things that matter. And, and when Jack, uh, when we had his celebration um, yesterday, uh, this reminder, the laughter that we shared was a, a big deal. Jack was a big Rockies fan. In fact, when he passed the week before Good Friday, the Friday before, he and Tina were on the couch watching opening day for the Rockies. And his breathing began to change. And he had had some heart issues over the last couple of years, a, a procedure or two. And she had a sense in that moment that when he stopped breathing that he, he wasn't with us anymore. And it would take some time to get that sorted out. But that's exactly what happened. Uh, Jack was a huge, huge Rockies fan. And uh, in fact, he has been a Rockies fan from the very beginning of the franchise, this expansion franchise that he got to enjoy so much. And in the, the service yesterday, one of his good friends told the story of them buying their first season tickets. They had season tickets every year. They had great, great seats. And they uh, told the story, he told the story of their, their trip to the very first opening day for the Rockies, April 5th, 1993. Was anybody there? Who was there for the very first game of the Rockies? Okay. Yeah, yeah, a couple of you. Well, Jack and his friend Jim were there. And, and I don't know if you know this, I mean, there's some lore around this game, and it's pretty incredible. It, there, if you were there, there were 80,000 of your friends that were there. It was the largest, and still is, still holds a record, for the largest attended Major League Baseball game of any regular season game, 80,000. It, it happened in Mile High Stadium. Coors Field wasn't built yet. And there it was in this massive football arena. And, and Jack and his buddy Jim had been there for hours. They were eating hot dogs and apparently had a few drinks. And partway through the first inning, before the Rockies took to the plate, uh, Jack just couldn't take it anymore. And he just said, I, I got to go to the bathroom. I got to run the bathroom. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. And he said, why are you going now? This is the game you just started. So Jack ran in the bathroom. And now if you know much about this game and the history, it included, of course, famously, the single most well-known event incident in the Rockies history. Eric Young came to bat at the very first at bat for the Rockies. Bottom of the first. And what did he do? He hit a lead-off home run. Jack was in the bathroom. <laughs> he could hear it from the back. He heard, he heard the noise. He heard the noise. And he, you know, came out and made his way down, found, got to his seat, got to his buddy Jim. He said, what'd I miss? <laughs> and Jim said, ah, you'll figure it out sooner or later. <laughs> Missed this incredible play. And when you begin to read the story of Easter, you get a feeling that 
the disciples, Mary, Martha, and everybody involved is a lot like Jack Kreger, what did I miss? And it begins to unfold. Now, it, this is underlined because I don't want you to miss this. There's a, a thing happening here. They're asking for the body of Jesus. It says, they laid Jesus there. Now, we mentioned he had no funeral, and that's true. We mentioned there was no pomp and circumstance around his death. And in fact, everybody that knew Jesus had scattered for the most part. His family wasn't there. The disciples were gone. They had all sort of run all their separate directions because everything was over. It had finished. They didn't expect anything to happen. The rest of the Bible, the rest, everything that follows the Gospels, they didn't expect anything after this. And so you have to wonder who is the they that's mentioned there. It was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. John tells us a couple of verses before. And he had a friend with him. His friend was Nicodemus. They were both men who were in Jewish leadership and became followers of Jesus but they aren't among the 12 and you don't know their names among the, you know, Peter, James and John and Thaddeus and Bartholomew and the whole crew. In fact, John says, and this is an incredible phrase. And if you've never caught this before, this is really important. Um, especially for some of us who find ourselves a little fickle when it comes to faith or maybe a little in and a little bit out, or maybe, maybe unsure or maybe full of doubt. Maybe you're on the outside looking in and saying, I, I mean, I see the true believers, but I don't understand why they feel that way or what they're raising their hands about or any of that. Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus will, will identify with them. Afterwards, Joseph, who, who had been a, what? Say it with me. Secret disciple. Did you even know secret disciples existed? No. I mean, I grew up in a church, and their, their, their kind of MO when it came to faith was you're either in or you're out. You're either sold out or you're some, something else, but you're not in. You're either a part of the deal or you're not. And you might even feel that way if you're usually not around and, you know, you thought, well, goodness sakes, what kind of pagan doesn't even go to church on Easter, right? And so you're here, but apparently, even in Scripture, there are people that we know that are secret disciples that say, I mean, I want to follow him, but I'm afraid of something, Jewish leadership in the case of these two men. And so that means that there must be all kinds of disciples, there's probably apathetic disciples. There's probably some angry disciples. There's probably some distant disciples. There's probably some people that are just busy disciples. And, you know, the idea of connecting with God or connecting with God's people just falls down the list of priorities. And you need to know that if the scriptures can call out two men and say, well, these fellows, they were in secret, they were disciples. And if Jesus or John the beloved or the scriptures draw a circle around even these two, God draws a circle around you too. You might even be a confused disciple. You want to figure out this God stuff, but it feels a little bit elusive to you or confusing to you. And if that's the case, you need to know there's all kinds of words that can come first, but the second word is disciple. And what that means is, is you're trying to sort it out. You're a follower too. You just don't seem to have all the answers that a whole other group of people seem to have already. And if that's true of you, God draws a circle of love that includes you and he knows you and he knows your name and he welcomes you in, even if some of God's people don't. And what you need to know is God's love for you is enough. And so when the story changes from crucifixion to resurrection, this is how it begins. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene, who, by the way, had a pretty interesting reputation. She was also a disciple of Jesus's. She came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Now, before we get further into the story, I think we need to acknowledge this, that when it comes to our life in faith, knowing God and trying to follow Jesus, on this side of Easter, we can be under the mistaken impression that Easter solves all of our problems, that there was a lot of problems, a lot of difficulties, a lot of pain, a lot of unanswered questions or or issues that remain. But now that Easter has happened, all of those things are solved and taken care of. And maybe even, if you grew up in a faith tradition that taught this sort of thing, tied up with a pretty bow and it's all good, God is good all the time, and we put a period at the end of that sentence, and don't dig any deeper beneath the surface of what that means. We can be under the mistaken impression that the resurrection solves everything. And if that were true, then that would mean that this side of Easter, this side of the resurrection, I wouldn't have any problems. And I'm guessing that when you come to the table, you would say, well, I don't know about him, but I've got a few problems. I've got a few relationships that aren't seeming to work out. I've got some fears or anxieties about the future. I don't know what God has in store for me, and I feel like I'm a bit out of control, and I would love to have some answers, and I don't have them. And you need to know this, that the resurrection doesn't solve all the problems. In fact, the truth is that this side of the resurrection, even though we're about to see what's going to unfold on Easter morning, all of the problems don't go away. In fact, they seem to multiply. They seem to get a little bit worse. And if that's the case, then you have to be asking the question, why does the resurrection even matter? I mean, what really happened at the resurrection? What really changed when Jesus came back from the dead? I'm so glad you asked. That's such a good question. And so maybe we'll, maybe we'll get to an answer before we're done, okay? So they're there. Mary's there at the tomb. She walks up, and the stone has been rolled away. And she sees that the tomb is empty. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, who is that? Do we know? That's right, that's John. You can see John's the author of those very words. (laughs) And of course, I love when I see this. At first, my thought is, you know, egotistical disciple, um, you know, a little prideful. But then I also am just a tiny bit jealous because it feels like John has an understanding of God's love that I want to have. I want to know God loves me the same way that John knows that. And so I lean into it a bit and I say, you know, way to go, John. At least you know it. I want to be like that too. So Peter, she finds Simon Peter and John, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And so at this point in the story, her assumption is that the body of Jesus has been stolen. I can't believe this made it into the Bible. I really can't. If you understand what's happening here, then you know that Eventually, we're going to learn, you know, spoiler alert, that Jesus is actually alive. But that's not what Mary thinks. It's not what Simon thinks. And it's not what John thinks. The empty tomb means something very different to them than it means to us. At least in the first few hours of Sunday morning. The empty tomb to them means that some tragedy has happened, that some foul play has occurred, that something that, 
that they hoped would be just a quiet morning for them to sort of nurse their wounds and at least experience their own grief turned into a scandal and something has run afoul and they've, they've taken the, the body of Jesus. Who has? Man, the Romans, maybe the Jewish leaders, we don't know, but he's gone and this is horrible. We just, we just want to be left alone and be in peace. The empty tomb means something very different to them than it means to us. And Mary tells them he's not there. They've taken the body. So a foot race ensues. Simon Peter and John, they run to the tomb. And the story's great. You should read it. It's kind of interesting how John tells this story too. And when they get there, uh, they feel the same way that, that Mary does. They're, they're a little bit confused. In fact, Luke says it this way. So they went in. That's, that's Peter and John. But they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They stood there, what? They were puzzled. They were confused. They didn't know what was going on. So whatever you think about the resurrection, whatever you think about Easter Sunday, at least take a beat, take a pause, and and ponder this. Simon Peter and John were standing in the empty tomb, looking at the folded grave clothes of Jesus, and they were puzzled. They didn't know what was going on. They were very confused. Even though Jesus had said, hey, you know what? Uh, We're going to Jerusalem, and when we get there, they're going to arrest me, they're going to beat me, they're going to kill me, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. The disciples said, got it, got it, take a note, check. And then they get closer to Jerusalem, and Jesus says, hey, I know this is a little tough to hear, and you've probably forgot it since last time I told you, but I just need you to know that when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me, they're going to beat me, they're going to kill me, and then they're going to put me in a grave, and then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And they go, yeah, yeah, this seems familiar. I think I've heard this before. And then he says it again and again. And now they find themselves in an empty tomb, looking at folded grave clothes, and they are puzzled. And at a very minimum, it ought to help you at least find some comfort in this truth that they experience and that you and I experience all the time. God can be quite confusing. And you know this, you've experienced it. And it could be a circumstance in your life. It could be a global pandemic. It could be wondering why things to be happening in your family the way they're happening or why this relationship can't find some peace or any number of things as you try to live out your life and you've said, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I wish you'd explain it to me. I don't know what path you want me to take. If you would just tell me, I would gladly obey you, but you seem to be quiet right now or you seem to be distant or you seem to be silent. I thought we were walking the path that you had in mind for us. Why is this so hard? God can be quite confusing. And because God is sovereign, because he's omniscient, he knows everything, because he's everywhere, when we say God can be quite confusing, really what we're saying is simply this, life can be quite confusing. And if you're anything like me, then at times you can say, I I have no idea what is really going on. And it doesn't feel like anybody's in charge and we're all just kind of floating around doing our thing, people doing things to each other they shouldn't, people treating each other the way they shouldn't, and I get myself caught up in all of it. And we want desperately to trust God and to believe that he's for us and that he's good and that he wants what's best for us. But sometimes our circumstances can make that very difficult. And just like Peter and just like John, we can find ourselves in a spot Looking around, it's all been predicted. There should be no surprises. 
And yet we say, I'm absolutely confused. I have no idea what's going on. And I bet you felt that way too. Things aren't quite working out the way you had imagined. And so when they go in to the grave and they're puzzled about this, this is what's happening. And this is after the resurrection. And so if you had the impression that the resurrection is supposed to solve everything, well, somebody probably should have told that to Mary and Peter and John because they're more confused than they've ever been before. And not only are they confused, they're afraid and they're hiding. In fact, John tells us just a few verses later, that Sunday evening, now we're, I don't know, 12 hours after they come to this understanding that the body's gone and he's even appeared to Mary and he's appeared to the disciples a few times. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were, what? Afraid of the Jewish leaders. They know what they're capable of. They saw it firsthand with Jesus. They know that the Jewish leaders were gladly Uh, jump into cahoots with the leaders of Rome and they have no idea what to expect next. And so they're huddled up probably in the upper room and they're with each other. They know they can trust one another, especially now that Judas is out of the picture, but they're scared to death. They don't want to leave the city. They don't want to leave the room that they're in and they have no idea what's going on. They're afraid. Now, we're going to jump ahead in the story. 50 days, okay? There are three Jewish festivals that are called pilgrimage festivals. And what that means is, is if you live a day away or a day and a half, maybe two days away from Jerusalem, it's your job as a Jewish family to make your way to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. Passover that just happened, and that's centered around the events of our Easter holiday, that is one of those pilgrimage festivals. 50 days after Passover is a festival called Shavuot. And Shavuot is centered around the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. It's when Jewish families celebrate Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai. And around that festival, again, all Jewish men and women make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate it. So in Passover, the population swells 10 times this normal amount. The same thing happens at Shavuot. 50 days after the disciples are fearful, hiding for their lives, and they are absolutely paralyzed with anxiety. 50 days, Shavuot happens. And when Shavuot happens, Jerusalem swells in population, and the disciples find themselves in the middle of that crowd in the city. Uh, For us, followers of Jesus, we know it more commonly as the day of Pentecost. And it's the beginning of the church. And on that day, Peter stood up with his friends and began to preach a sermon. In fact, this is how he begins that sermon. He says this, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, he says to a crowd of thousands, thousands, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and listen carefully to what I say. And so he begins to preach a sermon. It's his first sermon, really. It's a doozy. It's a good one. It kicks off the church. And his sermon is pretty simple. It's only got a few kind of big ideas. He says this, look, Jesus was God. We killed him. God brought him back to life. And we saw him. That's his sermon. That's it. 
Aren't, don't you wish I would preach that short? I mean, <laughs> honestly, uh, Peter's wasn't that short either. He throws in a whole bunch of scripture and all that good stuff. It's close to the Old Testament. It's, it's incredible. It's powerful. But that's his sermon. Jesus was God. We killed him. God brought him back to life. And we saw him with our own eyes. We are witnesses to all of it. Now you tell me, how does a group of people go from scared, frightened, anxiety-ridden people, afraid for their very lives, to walking out into the open streets of Jerusalem and accusing them of murder and declaring that the one that they killed is actually the Son of God? How does that happen? In 50 days, they had to be convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that death is not the end. They had to be convinced that death is not the end. That's the only way that happens. Would they be convinced that, well, surely they wouldn't kill us? Oh, no, no, they killed Jesus. Look out, here it comes. Would they be convinced that they would be safe, that God would protect them? No, no, God didn't protect Jesus. Jesus died a criminal's death. They had to be convinced that death is but a portal, but a stop along the way, that it is not the end, that it is not the period at the end of a sentence. They had to be convinced that they had nothing to fear and death is not the end. How about you? Are you convinced of that? I'll be honest. There are days when I wonder, and I'm not sure. I believe in the resurrection. I don't really waver on that. But I'm not sure how it all works when we take our last breath. And I know even the, the scriptures seem to be unclear about it all. And death can be a fearful thing. In fact, if the resurrection does anything, then it is summed up in this verse in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says this, because of the resurrection, Jesus has set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. This is that existential dread we've talked about here in church. This idea that, that surely my life must continue or I'll have control or I'll be in charge of all things when it comes to my existence. And we know ultimately, deep down inside, that that's simply not true, that we're not in control. And this, of course, causes a great fear, a deep anxiety in all of us. Listen close. The resurrection doesn't solve all your problems. It doesn't. You're still going to fight at home. You're still going to have a business that doesn't make it. You're still going to deal with disease and difficulty and pain and struggle. The resurrection doesn't solve all your problems, but it will put all of those problems in a proper perspective if you can believe what the disciples began to believe, that death is not the end. And while we have those problems... And we wonder how we're going to manage them or deal with them or make it through or deal with it or try to repair and love and forgive. Then we remember that death is not the end. Resurrection won't solve all your problems, but it will put them in perspective. And it will do a second thing as well. If your problems are in perspective, then you can put anxiety and fear and anger and bitterness and hatred in all of its proper places. And it makes room in your heart for love. Uh, a heart that's anxious has no room for love. A heart that's fearful cannot love. 
A heart that's full of bitterness or hatred cannot love. And listen close, love is the only thing, the only thing that will heal the wounds that we have. That's a promise. And so if it's true, what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, that the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, then the question that ought to kind of poke at you this Easter is really a very simple question. And the question is this, what does resurrection look like for us? We know what it looks like for Jesus. He, the stone was rolled away and his grave clothes were left and he walked out physically, bodily. He was raised from the dead. That happened a long time ago. What does resurrection look like for me and for you? I mean, if we have that new power in us, if the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me and lives in you, then resurrection ought to show up somehow, some way. And if you wrestle with this question, God will show you a place or two in your life where this can actually, well, not solve all your problems, but absolutely transform your heart, maybe some relationships in a new and profound way. So if you wrestle with this and you ask this question, what does resurrection look like for us every day? You know, on a Monday when it matters, on a Tuesday when you're trying to follow Jesus one step at a time, then odds are it's gonna look like you facing a fear that you don't wanna face. Odds are it's gonna look like you giving up control when you really wanna manage something and force an outcome that benefits you. Odds are it's gonna look like you choosing to love when any other option feels like the best option. For some of you, it's gonna be letting go of your need to be right and learning new things that today you think are way off base, but when you open your hands, God softens your heart, new things happen. For some of you, it's gonna be deciding that you will, instead of returning anger, you'll give kindness. For some of you, it's gonna look like generosity instead of selfishness. For some of you, today at a family event or this week when you're hanging with some coworkers, it's gonna look like attentiveness because you're placing somebody else's needs ahead of your own. And so you're gonna listen and they're gonna be seen and then you're gonna follow up later and say, how's your mom doing? How did that work out at home? That's what it's gonna look like. And you say, that's resurrection? Oh yes, that's what we call new life. New life always looks like surrender to God and love taking center stage. And when it does, well, that's the power of God in you because you and I both know what we would rather do. And so if you ask this question right now in this moment, God is so compassionate about you and for you, I think you'll hear his voice. So let's do it together as a group. Why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes on this Easter Sunday. Lord, we come to you to be more fully surrendered to you. For some of us, that looks like saying, maybe all this, maybe there's something to it. Maybe I don't have all the answers I thought I had. For some of us in the room, it looks like surrendering our life to God, maybe for the first time or the hundredth time. For some of us, it means that we're gonna choose a selfless path. 
openness, love, forgiveness. Even though we're hurt and betrayed. But Lord, we know that whatever path we choose, however you lead us, however you meet us today in this place of decision, we know that your love is enough for us, that you will give us the strength to do the things that we don't even feel like we can do in our own power. Mostly we just want what we want. We want it our way. And so Lord, surrender and giving up control, those are new, new muscles for, for us. And so Lord, on this Easter Sunday, may we get a taste of this new life. Help those of us in the room who have doubts about this to be convinced or at least be open to the idea that death is not the end. Lord, we love you. And we surrender to you right now in this moment. In the name of Jesus, we say, amen.